This story is from Luke in the 13th chapter. Listen for the word of God. Now Jesus was teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's what Jesus did. And, and then, just then, there appeared before him a woman in the synagogue who had a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was so bent over that she could not straighten up at all. Now when Jesus saw her, he called her over to him and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. And then he laid his hands on her. Immediately, she straightened up and began praising God. Now, the leader of the synagogue, he was indignant because, because it was the Sabbath. And he said to those gathered around, there are... Look, there are six days on which it is binding to do work. Come and be healed on one of those days. But not on the Sabbath day. Jesus said to him, You hypocrites. Tell me this. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath go and uh, untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to get water on the Sabbath? So ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, be set free, be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day. When he said this, all were ashamed. All who opposed him were ashamed. And everyone there was rejoicing because of the amazing things that Jesus was doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, be with us as we consider your story and how it is speaking to us on this particular day and to our particular situations and to the world at large. Be with me as I preach that the words of my mouth and be with all of us that the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so some, <clears throat> excuse me. Some things to consider for this morning. This is uh, 
it's easy to read or uh, hear stories like this and think, oh, it's those Pharisees again, it's those, those leaders the, uh, of the synagogue that have it all wrong. Um, but it's really important when we are reading these stories, especially as Christians, to remember that Jesus was there, he was teaching, he was Jewish, and that these are his people. So this is not a uh, Jews versus Jesus situation. This is a community learning and growing and speaking to each other. That's a really important thing to note. Jesus is preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, as he has done many times before, and the leaders are not opposite of him. They are in conversation with him. And Luke's audience was thought to have been both Jew and Gentile. Jesus' healing on the Sabbath in Luke is not a rejection of the Sabbath or a supplanting of it. It is a reminder, a redirecting. And we'll explore that today in the first part of this sermon. The truth is that the, the story of the miracle healing is a, is a gorgeous one and fits well into the larger narrative of, of Sabbath. But that's not the one we might have trouble accessing. We might have trouble accessing what this argument is about the Sabbath because who among us regularly practices Sabbath? To understand the conflict, to understand Jesus' choice within the synagogue, one must first understand the meaning of Sabbath. As Christians, we know Sabbath is directly related to God's creation. On six days, God, in six days, God made the world, and on the seventh day, God rested. Genesis 2 says, On the seventh day, God finished the work that God had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. Because on it, God rested from all the work God had done in creation. A whole sermon series could be devoted to our need for rest and our oppositional obsession with busyness as a society, but alas, that is not for this sermon, perhaps out of a need for self-protection. We also probably remember that honoring the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, or maybe we don't remember that. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's right. It's right up there with don't kill. Don't commit adultery. You shall have no other gods before me. But it seems that Sabbath is the one that we're cool to ignore. It's, it's, it's hard. Maybe we think it's antiquated. Another sermon might probe what do you think that's all about? are not doing the Sabbath. And only a third of our Jewish brothers and sisters observe what is considered a strict Sabbath. My friend Marianne McKibben Dana, who wrote the book Sabbath in the Suburbs and is actually going to be here in October doing another adult education uh, presentation on improv, so check that out. She'll be, uh, she'll be here then. She wrote a book on Sabbath for modern-day Christians, and she spent a year with her family uh, making every attempt to observe the Sabbath and, and wrote a book about what that was like. Many of you have actually read that book. We studied it. Um, if you haven't, I highly recommend it, and I probably have a copy that I can at least lend you. But in it, she writes, But for Jews, there is another narrative that resonates as strongly as the creation story. 
The Sabbath day is a gift for the Jewish people because it reminds them of the time when their people were slaves in Egypt, captive to Pharaoh's regime. They were forced to work, not six days a week, but every day of the week. There was no freedom, no relief, just the constant lashing of expectations. Do more, produce more, build more. But God brought the people out of slavery. God parted the Red Sea and gave them safe passage to freedom, and with it, the Ten Commandments. Among them, for six days shall, be, shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. So the Jewish observance of Sabbath is an exclamation to the world, we are not slaves to the empire anymore. We are free. Sabbath is about much more than rest. It is about freedom. I am the Lord your God, opens the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So when the leader of the synagogue argues about Sabbath and is ultimately concerned about the observance of Sabbath, he has history to back him up. The Sabbath is important. It's serious business. But Jesus is serious too. And he heals on the Sabbath. It seems that Jesus is less concerned with the restrictions of the Sabbath and more concerned with the spirit of the Sabbath. He is less concerned with the restfulness or the the not doing of work and more concerned with the unbinding part of it, the freeing part of it, the freedom that Sabbath represents. Woman, you are set free from your ailments. You are unbound. Did you notice the unbound, untie? set free that ran throughout the story, be it about setting free your ox or donkey, being set free from the spirit. And we are told that the whole crowd rejoices. And a friend of mine writes that, uh, Richard Swanson writes that, could it be that even the synagogue leaders who were put to shame also rejoiced in that moment because arguing back and forth toward greater learning is very much a part of the Jewish tradition. In this story, Jesus points out to the crowd in the synagogue that yes, Sabbath is to be observed, but they, and therefore we, must remember that Sabbath is about freedom. Sabbath is untying, unbinding, setting free. The woman who stands straight for the first time in 18 years is set free, released on the Sabbath. What could be more Sabbathy than that? More conversations on the ways we Christians might observe the Sabbath are, again, needed, but not my primary focus. Instead, I am drawn to another pattern, let's say, in this story. 
And not just in this story, but it's a pattern that emerges repeatedly in these conflicts over Sabbath healing in the gospel. In this story, we have the leaders of the synagogue, or a leader of the synagogue, defending the commandment to observe the Sabbath the way they've always done it. There are six days in which it is binding to do work, or the NRSV says, in in which work ought to be done. Come then and be healed. I'm not against healing. It's just not on the Sabbath. And right in the middle of his teaching, Jesus stops and heals this woman to set her free from the crippling spirit that has so deformed her. But the, the leaders, in their myopic vision on what the Sabbath is, are so concerned with right practice and the way that they've done it, they cannot see that this too is an unbinding that this is a a setting free, that this is a Sabbath gift. And this juxtaposition between the way we've always done it, between right practice and the spirit of why we do the things we do is what I want to invite you all to consider, not just today, but in the week ahead, and actually in my sermon for next week as well. Where in the church and where in our lives are we participating in patterns of rule or behavior that do not ultimately serve the original mission and purpose with which we set forth as the body of Christ or as individuals? Could it be that some of these patterns are at worst hurting us somewhere in the middle causing us to stagnate. I I said in a previous sermon that I was recently speaking at an evangelism conference, which I was a little bit nervous about, a lot nervous about, um, and one of the other speakers was a man named Mike Breen, who, if you closed your eyes, it sounded like Paul McCartney was lecturing you on church history. Um, So be jealous, uh, because that was awesome. But Mike Breen... uh, is an incredible evangelist and a gifted historian and speaker. And he, at this evangelism conference, told mostly stories of history. And the one that that stuck out the most for me as I was thinking about this question, what in our lives or in the church might be, what patterns do we have that might be worth examining, was something that he talked about. He called it religious feudalism. During the first 250 years of Christianity, when it was largely underground, people were meeting in church homes, and it was, it was, the church largely faced persecution from the authorities. Breen said that the growth of Christianity at that time was due to the strategy in which every disciple believed that one of their principal tasks was to make another disciple. Everyone was expected to be a producer. I want to be a disciple. I want to make a disciple. Being a Christian would always involve making another disciple. But then, and some of you are familiar with this story, came Constantine, who adopted Christianity and made it the state religion, thereby changing it forever. 
And in the post-Constantinian era, the leaders of the church who previously had neither visibility nor status suddenly became part of the nobility. He said suddenly the leaders that were trained in the way of Jesus were inculcated into the world of power and provision. Churches went on to become modeled after European feudalism, measuring their success by how many peasants they have and how much tax they pay. He even continued later that even the Presbyterians who don't believe in clericalism operated as if the pastor was the feudal lord of the congregation. The pastor was given power and provided. How did that happen? How did that happen? He says the metrics of feudalism are the metrics of the American church. How many peasants do you have and how much tax do they pay? Sort of a crude, uncomfortable way of saying, how many congregants do you have and what's your budget? He argued that members of congregations here are so focused, that are so focused on, uh, on that will never become producers, only consumers. Parking lot conversations among members in this scenario will center on whether and how church members are getting fed, and if not, they may go elsewhere. What have we done, he asked. We are followers of Jesus. And Jesus said, you are not to be like that. The principal priority of Jesus is that everyone is a disciple and making a disciple. And in this model, you'll only ever produce consumers, not producers. So in this model, you're... You're professionalizing the discipleship of the leaders, and everyone else is a consumer. Does that make sense? All right. I am not saying <laughs> that we at Westminster are guilty of this across the board, but I think it's, it's worthy of consideration. I don't want the responsibility of being the ultimate producer, neither does Larry or Patrick, I assume, though I won't speak for them. And I am so grateful for the way in which this church takes on leadership. When I came here one of the, 10 years ago, one of the most striking things that I remember hearing was 80% of our congregants participate in service at some point in the year. 80% of 1,000 people. That's a lot of people. The way that you lead on committees and in, in this organization is stunning by comparison to a lot of other places. But my excitement over this, and it is excitement, it is not feeling guilty or uh, wanting to to make us feel guilty. The excitement is, what if we went back to uh, our respective committees or the places in which you were involved and just asked the question, am I becoming a disciple in this, and do I feel empowered to make disciples? What's the primary mission of X, Y, or Z committee? It's worthy of examination again and again. And in a a congregation in which we produce a lot, it's very difficult to step back and, and have that conversation because we are so busy doing what we do and trying to do it well. I'm mostly just preaching to myself here. The point is not that churches are bad. Mike Breen has planted 1,400 churches. The point is not that churches shouldn't have pastors. Mike Breen is a pastor. The point is that churches should remember the original reason for church. What is it? To be disciples and to make disciples. 
Mike's point is that we've been participating in patterns that are too often building-focused, inward-focused, and not discipleship-focused. And studies show that the more inward-focused the church is, the less well it does. We're doing okay. Jesus said, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. And the Book of Order, which is, uh, contains our constitution in the Presbyterian Church, affirms this institutionally. It says the ch- church must be willing to risk its own life for the sake of Christ. I was so enamored by this, uh, this in our constitution that I put it in my statement of faith. And the statement of faith is something that's required of you uh, to produce when you are searching, in process of becoming ordained, and then when you are searching for a call. So right now the associate pastor nominating committee is reading a lot of statements of faith. And I put that in my statement of faith, and when it was my final interview with uh, the committee of the Presbytery of Philadelphia that was going to decide whether I could be ordained or not, a man there said to me, you know, that's really nice, but do you think anyone really means it? And I was crestfallen (laughs) and totally idealistic, I think. Um, But yeah, I think we do, and we ought to consider it and mean it. There's a reason why it's there. What is our mission? And why do we do the things that we do in this place? This pattern is not just for churches, though. It's for our own lives as well. I can't answer for you what things in your own life or in in our own lives, uh, are worthy of re-examining? What are the questions that you are afraid of your own life to answer? I sat with a woman at the storytelling conference that I did. I had invited everyone to tell stories to each other. And I sat with her, and she said, well, my story is, you probably don't want to hear it. I don't know. I said, well, just share it. And she told me the story of uh, she and her husband who for a long time had struggled because she was an explosively angry person and he was an uh, incomparably uh, passive-aggressive person. I don't know if any of you have experience with either of those. Um, and she said she thought that that's just the way things worked until they finally decided to go to counseling. And that was I, like 40 or 50 years ago and re-examining how they approached arguing saved their marriage. I wonder if any of you out there know someone who you swear is really just a social drinker. I wonder if there are any parents out there who live in Northern Virginia and have just signed their kids up for 20 sports and all the accelerated classes in preschool and are exhausted at trying to get them on the right track because that's just what we do here and are too afraid to step back and examine what other messages we're sending our children. Again, maybe I'm just preaching to myself here. 
If nothing else, this morning is an invitation to examine the unexamined, to listen to that voice that is telling us that maybe there's something better. This is good news, people. This Jesus healing a woman on the Sabbath, that is good news, and everyone rejoiced. But sometimes, in order to get to the good news, we have to feel uncomfortable first. My prayer for all of us is that we would live lives examined in our homes, in this church, and beyond. And at the end of the day, we will look around and see Jesus is doing amazing things in our midst. Thanks be to God. Amen.